When Will Harris's dad started using ammonium nitrate fertilizer on his farm in 1946, he had no idea he was destroying the microscopic flora and fauna on the land that are necessary for maintaining healthy topsoil. So after 50 years, he moved to a farming system that's not only organic, but regenerates the soil by emulating nature's own processes while concentrating on animal welfare and restoring rural economics. In today's episode of the Nutrition Heretic Podcast, we learn about the inaccuracies of labels such as organic and grass-fed, as well as how Harris's smart farming methods are helping to restore his 150-year-old family farm into a thriving farm for the future. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. If you're still confused about what to eat and not getting the results you thought you'd get by going organic, go to NutritionHeretic.com and download the shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague for free. The shit list details what health food companies want you to believe about the crap they peddle and why the real foods they're meant to replace are far better. Stop letting big health food dump all over you and download the shit list today. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. (laughs) It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well being. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Nutrition Heretic. My name is Adrian Hugh, The Nutrition Heretic. And I wanted to talk today about uh, last week, my visit to the farmer's market. This woman goes up to one of the farmers and is, uh, she's asking about his eggs. You know, what, what, what are these eggs that you're selling? Are they organic? And she keeps harping on this organic label. Are they organic? Are they organic? And he says, well, they're out on pasture. They're eating this, this, you know, bugs and, uh, grasses, but we do supplement. And because we live in Hawaii, the feed is not 100% organic. It's uh, basically what he feels the market will bear. Uh, The eggs that he was selling were about $6 a dozen, I believe. And uh, I'll just put it this way. The cost of the organic feed is double that. So the woman says, oh, no, I'm not going to buy those. I'm I only eat organic and I was, uh, I raised chickens and they have to be organic. And it was a little bit laughable because she didn't look like she was in the best of health and she, you know, was more than just a little overweight. Uh, so to have this kind of, um, angry, staunch, I know what it is. I know what's good. And there's only one way to do, to, you know, crack this nut. Uh, it was a little bit 
funny. Now, I do obviously like to eat organic when I can. However, sometimes I do feel that I have to cut my losses. Uh, would I rather and a chicken egg that has been fed a little non-organic feed and mostly bugs uh, and on grass? Uh, personally, I would say I would take that over a supermarket egg any day of the week. If I could get the egg to be fed organically as well, all the better. But you know, sometimes I feel that, yes, I have to suck it up for fear of making myself crazy. So with that said, today's guest is uh, Will Harris. He's a fifth generation farmer at White Oak Pastures, uh, and they raise five red meat animal species and five poultry species on pasture, and they're hand butchered on a 150-year-old family farm. The farm also engages in furthering animal welfare, regenerative land stewardship, and rural economics. Will, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Rachel. Glad to be here. And uh, by the way, you. I love your accent, might well, I say. I'm, I'm, from, I'm from New York. And I, I had Southern neighbors, but they didn't sound like you. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you like my accent. Uh, it's the only one I've got. <laughs> I, I've got a lot because I was, uh, my parents are Jamaican, so I do a little bit of a Jamaican accent sometimes. Yeah. I, was, uh, I was interested in your story about the eggs. Uh, you know, the, or, the USDA certified organic standard is a pretty good standard for vegetable production or plant production. But when it was applied to animal agriculture, you know, it was not the best application in the world. Mm. You know, an example of that is, you know, you can buy organic eggs that literally come from industrial laying operations that are simply fed organic feed. Yes, so exactly. You, you, your story was uh, was well well placed. Right. Well, and that's and that's exactly what I want to one of the many things I want to talk to you about today, which is that people get blinded by this organic label. But organic industrial is not necessarily what people think. It's not the quality that people think they're getting. So when we explain to me, actually, I'm going to jump to what ended up was going to be my 10th question <laughs> on my list here. But um, explain to, to us what organic means in terms of you know like do people know what they're getting when they get organic uh under one uh, at one point i remember hearing that uh organic meant that only 90 percent needed to be organic the rest could be just mystery product you know <laughs> whether it's heavy metals or, or what have you uh what does organic mean in terms of that that label and then how do people possibly get um duped by that well, label the uh the u.s organic standard usda organic standard is a very long very explicit very complicated standard that you can go online and read if you've got two or three days to spend doing that uh you know it's been added to and added to and changed and, and amended and but it does particularly in animal agriculture allow for many practices that would fly in the face of what the consumer typically thinks they're getting when they buy uh, organic. Exactly. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to be critical of, of uh, USDA or uh, certified organic. I, my farm is USDA certified organic. 
Right. My, point, my only point is reading a label is a really poor way of determining uh, what's in your food. Uh, labeling laws have been written in, in ways that are very vague, very ambiguous. It's very difficult to just read the label and know what you're getting. You know, there's a the, the local food movement really caught traction and has continued to have traction. And I believe that that's because the best way of knowing what you're buying is to know your farmer or know something about your farmer. The local food movement came to mean within a certain radius or within the state or within the county. Really, I think the local food movement is knowing who your farmer is and something about their production practices. Right. And if that person is your neighbor, that's the best way. It, absolutely. But if, but if not, there are other ways of giving that transparency. Yes, for sure. And, you know, this is uh, one of the things that I always tell people, which is that when you go and talk to a farmer about how they raise their food, very I, I know very few of them that are just complete yes men. Uh, very more often than not, if they don't want to grow their food the way that you want it produced, they will kind of mock you. Actually, they'll, they'll make fun of you. They'll say, Oh, well, we can't do that. That's impossible. You can't raise peaches that way or you can't raise chickens that way. Uh, and they're more inclined to, to, uh, take kind of a smug approach towards dealing with you than to actually lie. So, uh, I don't know if that's something that you've seen in the, in the industry. Well, and uh, yes, and I think that the story you told also, you know, the lady wanted, uh, she wanted it pastured and she wanted organic feed and she wants something, maybe something else or something else or something else. And that's fine. Certainly she can choose whatever uh, list of stipulations she wants to uh, select for what she's paying her money for. Right. And all the farmer can do is just be honest and transparent about what his production system is right. and then let those those people choose. Right. Um, the enemy the, the enemy of people like us, farmers who raise uh, food in a manner that has a very high level of animal welfare and a high level of uh, environmental sustainability, uh, the, the biggest enemy we've got biggest enemy we have is uh, multinational industrial uh, companies, food companies that greenwash their product. Yes. They use these vague, ambiguous labels and hire very talented wordsmiths to talk about their production system to make it sound as though it's what the consumer wants, and that devalues the product's that people like us produce that are really doing what we say we're doing. Absolutely. And and this is a, another uh, thing that I've noticed as well, as far as people getting very uh, uh, distracted by that organic label is, for example, I was down in D.C. at one point and uh, – well, it's not down for me anymore, but I used to live in New Jersey. Uh, so I was in DC once and we went to some little cute town and we stopped in a, a type of uh, deli type shop and they had strawberries and then they had a bunch of boxed organic, you know, crackers and cereals and totally just, uh, uh, heavily processed 
items. I can't even call them food, to be honest. And the person who was with me said, well, oh, oh, those strawberries? Oh, you know, strawberries, they're the worst on pesticides. The, you can't, oh, pe- oh. And then she, she picks up this box of basically cardboard, <laughs> inside cardboard, <laughs> and, and she buys that because it's labeled organic. Uh, to my mind, I'd rather clean the strawberries as best I can and kind of suck it up that it's not organic and eat that than to eat this dried up straw in a box. I don't know. How do you feel about something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, I I absolutely believe that the, the more food is processed, the further it gets from the food that we as a population evolved eating Right. You know, we, or we, and by we, I mean uh, American farmers, my, my father's generation and, and my generation, are the, are the people that uh, industrialized, uh, centralized, and commoditized food production. And that only started really post World War II. Right. So we, we've only been uh, uh, eating this industrial type. Uh, farm products for about 70 years. That's not very long. No, not at all. Not at all. So, so, um, give, give me what, what do you, okay, you have the USDA organic label. What are your practices? Because when we talk about, uh, regenerative, regenerative agriculture, um, what does that mean to you? Like, how do you regenerate this, this depleted soil? Okay, well, you asked several questions there, and uh, <laughs> I don't know exactly where to start, but let me try it like this. So the, the three uh, legs to, the, to, to our production system is uh, high animal welfare. Mm-hmm. As you said, we produce five red meat species and five poultry species, high animal welfare, high uh, uh, environmental sustainability, which is the regenerative uh, management side of it. And then the third one is just uh, fair rural economics, which is another long uh, discussion. But in all things we do, we endeavor to emulate nature and in doing that, support those three legs. If we talk about... uh, animal welfare. Our farm is the only farm in the United States that uh, has a step five plus rating from Global Animal Partnership, GAP, the whole foods rating system. People this is what people think of it as. Okay. Yep. We're the only farm in the country that has a step five plus in all four species that they uh, have standards for. Mm. We're also animal welfare approved, also certified humane, three different uh, certifiers that all focus on animal welfare. Right. All three of them have a big have big books on what comprises good animal welfare. But really, at the end of the day, good animal welfare means the farm uh, uh, creates a system in which the animal can express instinctive behavior. Mm. You know, cows were born to roam and graze. Hogs were born to root and wallow. Chickens were born to scratch and peck. And in industrial farming, those animals are deprived those the expression of those basic instincts. Right. So we, you know, we can talk forever and print big books like our certifiers have on good animal welfare, 
but that's the cowboy uh, down and dirty on it. If you oh, enjoy, wow. If you enjoy watching the animals, it's probably pretty good animal welfare. Nobody right. wants to watch animals, chickens in a battery cage, hogs in a gestation crate, uh, cows on a feedlot. Uh, but, but if you enjoy watching it, you probably got pretty good animal welfare. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so, um, yeah, this is, that, that actually was, uh, one of my questions was, you know, what, what does that even mean, animal welfare? Uh, and it's good to know because I think there is a lot of, uh, political correctness, to be honest, of people thinking that just because you're raising animals or I'm eating animals, that there's nothing humane about the entire system. I could go on about people having cats in their homes, not being able to express their <laughs> their natural instincts uh, the way they might do if they were outdoors. Um, but that's that's another uh discussion for another time. So when we look at these, uh, these different forms of, of, uh, these methods of farming, I should say, we've got things like organic, we've got biodynamic, biologically integrated, aquaponics, cultivation of, uh, indigenous microorganisms. Uh, what, which one do you feel that you subscribe to the most and benefits the land the most? Good. That's a good question. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of uh, Alan Savory? Oh, Sav yes. Okay. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> Actually, he's the how we found you. Well, I'm very pleased that uh, that you have that. But for, you, for your listeners, let me just say, please Google Savory Institute. Uh, I believe that Savory Institute has regenerative agriculture figured out better than anyone else that I'm uh, aware of. And I've dug pretty deep in that well. So uh, we are uh, a savory, uh, regenerative uh, uh, hub. There are, I think, 24 hubs on six continents. Mm. I know there are three east of the Mississippi. Uh, okay. My farm, White Oak Pastures in Georgia, one in upstate New York, and one in Michigan. And uh, uh, regenerative agriculture is basically using uh, uh, animal impact and multi-species uh, plant populations to regenerate the soil. And it's a really beautiful system. Mm. Right. And, and my understanding is that he does nothing more than just throw the animals out on the, on the land and let them do their thing. <laughs> well, I mean, that sounds a little more crass than it probably is, but, uh, that really there's this trend towards, well, we can't have, you know, the, the animals are destroying the planet because we're raising them all for food and, uh, we, it's, it's unsustainable. They're creating methane gas, yada, 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 uh, you know, problems, skull and crossbones everywhere. But what you folks are talking about is integrating animals in the restoration of the land. Yeah, absolutely. As I, you know, I would maintain that the planet won't ever be restored without animal impact. You know, I, animal impact is what uh, was a, was a driving force in creating the Earth that we have mm -hmm. today. And to say that you know the predator prey relationship, it, it it is not just throwing the animals out of there. That would be 
uh, crass understatement. It's uh, it's much more complicated than that. Right. But it it uh, it does involve again use the word emulating nature. It right. Be, the way uh, the the way the earth evolved uh, was uh, uh, grazing animals, uh, harvesting the grass that's grown, uh, predators keeping the animals moving so that the land was not was grazed because land can be overrested. Yes, but the predators moved it so they wouldn't be overgrazed. So, right. You know, there's a, I don't know how deep you want to get into this, but there's basically four systems going on on every acre of land that's not under pavement or buildings every day. Mm-hmm. You've got a certain, you've got the energy cycle, a certain amount, the sun sends a certain amount of radiation. And if, if the land is managed right, there's a lot of different varieties of photosynthesizing plants out there harvesting that energy. Right. Not, bare, not bare ground or parking lots or building, bouncing it back up into the uh, atmosphere, but photosynthesizing plants turning that radiation energy into uh, sugar for light and protein that can be utilized. Right. There is the water cycle. Every acre of land receives a certain amount of precipitation. 54 inches on my farm in Georgia, you know, less than two inches in Death Valley. Mm. But a certain amount of water. And the uh, water cycle needs to absorb that water so it doesn't run off and create floods. Yes. Uh, And then, then, you know, green growing plants are the best way to to utilize that moisture. Then there's the mineral cycle that involves uh, taking carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the air and uh, sequestering them in the soil. We're talking about the opposite of this this business of animals flatulence destroying. Right. <laughs> you know, it's the opposite. You know, we're if it's done animal uh, agriculture done right, actually sequesters carbon in the soil where it needs to be and gets it out of the air, out of the atmosphere where it doesn't need to be. Right. And then there's the the harvest of that, and by which you can use animals. We that's a that's a Cliff Notes version of uh, you know a two day conversation, right? Yeah, and and you just gave me about seventeen questions just in that statement alone because the, immediately what comes to mind is the drought in California. You're not in California, but at face value, what do you see could have been done to remediate that, uh, to not make it uh, the horrible impact that it's had on people, if anything? Well, I'm, I'm not a meteorologist, so I wouldn't... Uh, but in terms of your system of farming, because I know a lot of the farmers were, were su- uh, clearly suffering, and that may be because the water is being diverted to grow almonds, for example, uh, you know, the little bit of rainfall they, they were getting. But uh, is there anything in the system you talk about that uh, protects against that level of drought that they experienced? Well, yeah, yes, there's a, there's a lot of things. You know, I just talked about one of the four systems being the the, the water system. And, you know, uh, not just the way the farmers farm, but the fact that we have, uh, uh, I almost said destroyed, that's probably not quite right, but certainly done horrible damage to the water system 
uh, through industrial agriculture. You know, my, I can give you many examples, but uh, just two right offhand. They're very different, but uh, and I can give you many more. Uh, the organic matter in the land in, on my farm is over 5%. The organic matter on the farm next door is less than one half of, one half of 1%. So what that means is when, and my land is covered with growing plants and litter, the other farm is tilled up two or three times a year to the naked ground, naked earth. Mm -hmm. So when we get, and in, in, in my part of the world on the Gulf Coast, uh, we get very hard thunder showers. We may get two inches of rain in an hour. And when that happens, you can stand on the downhill side of my pastures very little water will be coming off the pasture, right. and what does come off is not muddy. Mm, okay. So if you go right next door, it'll be a torrent coming down, and it'll uh, you know the water so muddy you can't. It looks like a milkshake. You can't see through it. So, so basically, the land doesn't want to hold on to that water. Well, you destroy the water system. That's right. You destroy the Earth's ability to, to absorb as much water as it should. Mm -hmm. so let's, let's, and we can talk about those things a lot, but let's let's go to another stream. You know, we, you hear so much about floods. And remember when the first uh, Europeans came to this country, one of the largest industries was uh, beaver trapping. Yes. Uh, beavers are probably the the best flood control uh, you could possibly uh, imagine because they build leaky dams everywhere they can find running water. Mm -hmm. So when more water falls than the land can absorb, it, it fills up a beaver pond. And, of course, it fills up many, many, many beaver ponds before it gets down to a place that is a potential flood. Right. And then that water slowly leaks down. If there's another huge rain, it fills the ponds back up. So it's like a, a world-class buffer yeah. against flood. So, and, and you know, we can talk about many, many, many other things, but you know, we, when you destroy the water cycle, guess what? You're going to have water problems. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's, uh, it's not rocket science, yet it seems that uh, our scientists are so hell-bent on overriding nature that they forget to respect the signals that nature is giving us at any given time. Well, I think I can explain a little bit of that to you if you want me to. Sure, go for it. Okay. So, do you know the difference in complicated and complex? Yes. Okay. Can I say it? Yes, you, you can. I, I, I actually describe this to people all the time that, uh, you know, that, that the, the body is complex. It's not complicated. It's just, it has certain requirements, but you don't need to complicate it. <laughs> well, no, that's exactly right. The body is, is complex. Uh, uh, this computer is complicated. Right. And, and the defining difference is if one component in this computer goes awry, that son of a bitch quits working. It don't work no more. <laughs> exactly. If one, if one component of your body ceases to work, unless it's your heart or brain, the rest of your body will make adjustments. 
Homeostasis, we like to and, call that. And it'll, and it'll continue to operate. Yes. Well, so, so much of science is reductionist science. And reductionist science works really well on complicated systems or, or instruments. It works really poorly on complex yes. uh, systems. So industrial, I mean, uh, uh, reductionist science gave us tools to use in one of the most complex systems there in the world, and that's like a farm. A right. farm is horribly complex. Yeah. Or horrible is not the right word, but incredibly complex. Yes. So, you know, they gave us uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides and hormone implants and many, many other GMOs and many, many other tools that uh, complicate create, the picture. Create, it create, that, that, that create a desired effect, but they have incredible unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And the uh, you know, unintended consequences come from the fact that it's a complex system and there was no way of anticipating exactly what uh, those uh, consequences would be using reductionist science. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and this, is, uh, this is something that's obviously concerning a lot of people because we it, – it's uh, – you know, on the one hand, it's easy to simplify something that you don't really do firsthand. So I'm sure you get people all the time who – kind of poo-poo what you do or, you know, they kind of look down like, oh, it's, you know, it's so easy. Why do you charge so much or whatever their beef is with what you do? Uh, however, it's kind of, it, it shows their ignorance about what you do because it's only by doing that you understand the complexity of it. Yeah, that's, that's part of the human equation. I mean, I can look at what other people do that, that requires a lot of training and and experience and knowledge, and you know, in my naivety, I can say, "Why don't you just blank?" Right. And you know, the same is true with other people uh, looking at what we do, uh, and that's that's just the human condition. We, we can't right. help that. Yes, and and what's interesting though is is listening to someone like you because you have the experience, you understand how these different cycles work, and you know how to successfully farm for the future. Meanwhile, we have the ADMs and Monsantos of the world who look down on what you do and think that it's not scientific enough. You know, when, since when is anything not science? And that's as, that's what you do is science, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but like you said, there's reduction of science and then there's, uh, you know, how things actually work. Okay. So, uh, another, uh, what I want to know is when did you decide, because you, you were a conventional farmer before. When did, what was the turning point in your head where you said, this isn't working anymore or I need to start paying attention so that you're not like your neighbor? Yeah, I've had that question before, and I wish I had a better answer. I wish I'd seen a burning bush or God had spoke to me. But the, the truth is, uh, I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976. My degree was in animal science, and I've been raised by my father, who was the best industrial cattleman I'd ever known. And I learned industrial beef production at the University of Georgia. 
And I came home and really loved it. I was I was really good at it. My temperament and personality are very linear, alpha, male, western, more is better. So it suited me very well. Mm-hmm. And I farmed that way for 20 years and wow. was successful. I made money. We lived, we lived well. Uh, but every year, especially towards the end, it was less and less enjoyable for me. And the reason is I was becoming uh, disillusioned with it and later disgusted with it because I was starting to recognize the unintended consequences. And I don't know exactly how that happened or why that happened, but the unintended consequences that my father never noticed and I didn't notice for 20 years gradually became apparent and then obvious and then all too obvious to me. And I started making changes very subtly and uh, we're still making changes. And uh, that was 20 years ago. For 20 years, we've been making changes. It's a journey, not a destination. Right, right. So, and it was, uh, when you say unintended consequences, not totally sure I understand. Okay, I got that for you. So, uh, I can give you a lot of examples. My favorite one is... Uh, My father uh, told me in 1946, he went to a meeting, farmer meeting, in our little town of Bluffton here, and uh, uh, a salesman was sponsoring the meeting, uh, you know, fish fry, barbecue, whatever it was, and uh, uh, everybody ate supper, and uh, when the farmers were ready to leave, he gave he had two two hundred pound bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, mm-hmm. and he gave every farmer a little brown paper sack with ten pounds or so in it, and asked they go home and get out in the pasture and pour the, the ammonium nitrate out in a pattern, a straight line, or a circle, or write your name, or whatever you wanted to do, and then uh, put water on it, wet it, hose it. And then leave it alone for three days and come back and look at it. And uh, my father did that. And when he came back three days later, the grass was just exponentially taller and greener and better looking than the grass that didn't get the ammonium nitrate. Right. So, you know, he said, I want all my land to look like that. And from 1946 until 2002 or three or four, either he or I applied ammonium nitrate fertilizer one or two or three times a year to every acre of land that we have. And because we wanted that desired effect. But what we couldn't see, what he couldn't see in 1946, and I couldn't see until I learned how to look, is that applying that ammonium nitrate fertilizer to that virgin earth uh, oxidized the uh, organic matter, the carbon in the land that had been forming since the dinosaurs were here. Right. Uh, It killed the, slowly, but killed the microscopic flora and fauna Mm -hmm. that fed the land, lived in symbiotic relationship with the, the plants to feed them. And it was doing horrible things, but, but get, uh, in the long run, 
but getting a fantastic short-term effect. Right. So that's the unintended consequence. Mm. And we can talk about unintended consequences in animals and other things as well. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm, uh, I, what I keep thinking is that right now I'm learning something called the Korean natural farming method. I don't know if you are familiar with it at all. And, uh, it's so harmonious with the land and cultivating the very things that this ammonium nitrate was killing. Uh, so it's, it's, it works on the principle of cultivating essentially the probiotics in the soil, uh, so that they can, flourish and suppress the weeds naturally you know uh, one of the ancient greeks i don't remember which one probably couldn't pronounce it but did but one (laughs) of the ancient greeks said for every pestilence that nature sends she sends the cure absolutely but we use these uh these tools like uh pesticides chemical fertilizers hormone implants antibiotics and it, it throws everything out of sync And then we wonder why we're having this pestilence. Right. You're preaching to the choir here. Uh, So tell tell me about uh, the labels of grass-fed and pastured, because I know that your animals are out on pasture. I think most people, when they hear about grass-fed, or actually, here's another one, cage-free, when they're buying their chickens and eggs, right? Cage-free, what does that mean? What does pastured or grass-fed mean? Is is can any of those labels be misleading? All, all, all of the above, yes. So uh, then that gets back to what we said earlier, or what I said earlier about reading a label is a horrible way of determining what you're really getting. Uh, I am on the board of the American Grass-Fed Association, and we have a definition of grass-fed that you can look on our website and see you can see the standards, the production standards that you've got to maintain to have that label. But USDA defined grass-fed several years ago. And basically, under the USDA standard for grass-fed, you can raise cows on a confinement feedlot, give them hormone implants and sub-therapeutic antibiotics, and call it grass-fed as long as you feed them grass and not green in the feedlot. Right. You harvest the grass in haylage or, or some other form. Uh, cage-free basically has no uh, significant uh, attribute connected to it. Uh, pastured is what I call my uh, production system, and that's because USDA has not defined it. Mm-hmm. It, it hadn't been screwed up yet. Right. But uh, again, it would be so nice if there was this really succinct labeling system that you could look and, and know, but it's just not that easy. There's too much There's too much money in the food business, so too many people are going to uh, create uh, pretty words that make the consumer uh see a production system in their minds that's probably not happening uh, in the in the pasture, in the field. No, no one, you know, on my farm, we built a restaurant in part, so on-farm restaurant, so people could come to see us and eat and see what we do. We later put, built lodging. We got cabins on the farm oh, nice. so people can come and stay and see what we do. Uh, we've spent a lot of we, we do all those verifications I mentioned uh, I mentioned the uh, 
Global Animal Partnership, Certified Humane, Animal Welfare Approved, also American Grass-Fed Association. The farm is certified organic, although the uh, meat and poultry is not uh, a savory uh, hub. I mean, we, we try to get all the little merit badges right. that we can, and I think that goes a lot further towards telling the consumer uh, an accurate um, uh, painting more accurate picture of the production system where there's nothing as good as coming and looking or, you know, get on the website and look and uh, you can tell a lot about uh, what people are doing. Just, just, study, just study in the website, but you can't just study the label. Right, right. Well, could you, I think uh, some of our listeners may not really understand how these labels are misleading. So, for example, my understanding is that when they say a chicken is cage free, they're still in a barn and they're still wing to wing. And they're still eating each other's feces, <laughs> but they're just not in a cage. They're in a barn where they're locked up until the last day when they open the door and the chicken is like, I'm not going out there. <laughs> yeah, well, you could say, uh, you could say, uh, you know, I live in Georgia and we have a, uh, it's the number one broiler, industrial broiler production state in the union. And, uh, you know, the way broilers are raised, it's a one big old long house with 25,000 or so birds in there. And there's not, there's not a cage in there, but the, the, the house is a cage. Right. Free range was bastardized badly when they uh, basically said you can cut a door in the house and uh, if the chickens, that makes them free range, although the only option they got is step outside on a little concrete porch. Right. Uh, it, it, it goes on and on and, uh, and always will, but you know, you've, got, you've got uninformed consumers, a lot of them, that just don't care. And then you've got another class of consumer that kind of wants to be lied to, right. make them feel a little better about it. And then you've got a, a higher class of, of uh, consumer in terms of uh, sophistication. Right. And these are the people that really want to know what's going on out there. Right, and right. That, and, those, and those are my customers. You know, that's, that's uh, you know, everybody gets to spend their food dollar on whatever they want to spend it on. But, you know, 90% of those people are not my customers. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, just to, to go back to that that label again, uh, I, I was also reminded as you were speaking of a farmer who I forget if he used grass fed or pastured for his chickens. Uh, and he doesn't know this, but I, I saw how his chickens are really raised. Yeah, he, he showed me the ones where he let them out on the on the grass. Um, I actually found out that they're in black tents that do not move. And are actually pretty small with 50 to 100 chickens in them. Just, they look like, uh, like row covers for your vegetables. And these tiny little black tents, you know, so they're not getting sunlight. They're crammed in there. And yeah, they're on grass, but they're far from thriving. Yeah. And that's, that's the reason that transparency and people, you know, are ha having the, 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 gates open so people can come and look is, right. is important. Absolutely. And and uh, I remember when I asked him about his animals before I even found out, you know, the the backstory of what's going on there. And 
you know, he was very vague. You can, you can kind of tell when someone, you know, nobody gets into this kind of farming just because they woke up one morning and thought about it. You know, you don't make that kind of investment, uh, willy nilly. It, it doesn't just happen that way. There's, there's someone who wants to do it right. There's a commitment there and there's an engagement and a conversation. And like you say, the transparency, come up to the farm. Why don't you see how, how we're doing it? Why don't you come and take a, take a look? You know, if you're, if you have questions, we can answer them right there. So, um, and then uh, that, that was actually another thing I wanted to ask you about is the whole vegetarian feed. Uh, again, going back to animal welfare, how does, how does that work in? Because that's another buzzword that people latch on to. Oh, I, I only eat animals that have been fed. Oh, you know, the bad cow. That's what it was animals being fed to animals. What's the deal with the vegetarian feed? And why do we or do we not want that? Well, as I, as I said earlier, we aspire to emulate nature. And I'll say that our best emulation is imperfect, and our worst emulation is needs a lot of improvement. But we're continually uh, striving to do a better and better job emulating nature. And I brought that back up because there are farm animals that are vegetarians, mm-hmm. cows, sheep, goats, rabbits. Uh, There are farm animals that are very carnivorous or omnivorous. Uh, uh, Hogs, chicken, or poultry in general. Hogs and poultry in general. So, you know, if you don't think that uh, my hogs will eat a snake or a uh, bird, uh, ground birds, get in the bird nest, whatever they can get I mean, they, they're, they're, they're very carnivorous uh, with things like that. Uh, same with the, with the poultry. You know, they eat bugs, they eat worms. They, nobody wants to think about it, but if they find a nest of baby mice, they'll eat them. Right. You know, they, they're just meat eaters. And uh, it's disingenuous. For, you know, we, we feed only vegetarian feeds, but the animals eat uh, whatever they you know when they're out on pasture they're they're getting uh, animal protein and it does them good. Right now it is true that uh, it goes against nature to trick a herbivore into eating uh, animal protein and that that's what's said to have caused the BSE or mad cow disease is feeding uh, animal tissue back to cattle. Right, and that's that's just wrong. I mean, cattle, cattle, or sheep, goats—they will not uh, graze near a dead animal. They don't. They right. don't want to eat uh, uh, animal protein. Right, right. I mean, they do get incidental insects when they're eating their grasses, but that's not not like what we consider animal animals. Right. They didn't, well, they didn't intend to. I right. Mean, they, they didn't choose to eat those worms. It's just, you know. Right, right. But, um, yeah, it's. It, I mean, they do, and I guess in that sense, they do sort of get an, an animal protein, but not what we're thinking about when we think of uh, of those. And I, I don't know. Did you know Mark Purdy, who did the, the British uh, farmer who had um, done the studies on BSE? 
No, no, I've heard the name, but I don't know that. Yeah, he was, uh, I had seen him speak at uh, the Weston Price Conference some years ago. And uh, it was very interesting. To, uh, unfortunately, he's since died, but uh, he had some very uh, kind of damning evidence against uh, some pesticide programs that were uh, run in the UK that actually are more likely to, to have been the cause of the, the BSE outbreak. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was apparently some type of pesticide or, or, yeah, it was to kill warble fly. And they, they forced all these farmers to put it on their, on the, slather it on the backs of their cattle. And this is my understanding, at least the, the way I recall it. And, um, yeah, and he and several other organic farmers said, well, we can't be organic if we're going to put that stuff on our cows. And none of their cows got the BSE. But, so, in any case, um, th- th- I want to uh, actually I have two questions. One is my question, and one is from a listener, which I'm not sure you'll be able to answer that because I'm I'm not even sure a hundred percent sure what it means. <laughs> but uh, I want you to tell tell me a little bit more about uh, the importance of the family farm and how that plays into rural economics. <clears throat> well, the because uh, whether it's owned by family specifically, uh, I don't know. I mean, it so happens ours is been same our family for 150 years, but uh, rural economics was impacted horribly by centralization. Uh, it used to be that in uh, every rural town you had a uh, small abattoir where the animals were slaughtered. You had a little flour mill, a corn grist mill. Uh, probably a bakery, you know, a little local food system that uh, fed the population, and uh, uh, and there was a lot of diversity in the production because that's the way nature works. The post World War II centralization, industrialization, commoditization disrupted all that. And we started growing just about all of our vegetables in California. That's, that's a little overstated, but it's, it's kind of right. We started growing just about all our milk in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. That's, we started growing just about all our cotton you know, uh, you know, from the Mississippi to Georgia, kind of a little belt down there. All our soybeans and, and corn, it became very centralized. Uh, we we raise cattle in 50 states. We ship them to what we used to call the southern state feeding area. That's expanded a little bit from that. And then, of course, there were huge slaughterhouses there, uh, huge uh, cereal production uh, uh, factories, to, you know, huge, uh, huge, huge, huge everything. So what that did is it literally cause there to be no reason to have small rural towns anymore. Right. And, uh, you know, it would be hard for me to justify uh, adding huge amounts to the cost of goods to have those small little towns, but again, uh, unintended consequences. And when you build a uh, meat plant, say a beef slaughter plant, that kills 400 head of cattle per hour for 16 hours a day. Ah. There's no way to staff that plant with local people. 
Right. So you wind up bringing in uh, huge numbers of immigrant people, many of whom are not legal and gets that that kind of uh, uh, situation started. When you have a recall, when, you, when something goes wrong at that plant and you have a recall because there's an E. coli uh, outbreak, it doesn't include hundreds of pounds of meat. It includes millions of pounds of meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, and, you know, from a pollution perspective, from many, many, many perspectives, these super efficient centralized plants that caused food to be obscenely cheap had horrible unintended consequences. And one of these unintended consequences is rural, rural towns slipped into oblivion. Right. The town that uh, I'm in right now, Bluffton, near my farm, had 400 people in 1900. There's only got 100 people today. What? It's nuts. And and those people, the 400, let's say, how many of those would you say maybe were f- actually farmers at that time? Well, uh, in, in 1900, right. Uh, it was a purely agrarian economy as it is today. So every person here was a farmer or uh, served a farmer, the, the medical doctor, the uh, you know bank, whatever. Mm. There was no economy other than the farm economy right. here in 1900, and there's just about no economy here today other than the ag economy. But the ag economy has, you know, in industrial agriculture, has very little need of small of the small town services. You know, one uh, one farmer with three employees can farm thousands of acres of land. Right. Now the the uh, method of farming might be uh, uh, not very good for the land, but they can do it. Right. Right. And you know what you what you say has so many implications. Uh, I don't want to get political <laughs> today, but, uh, you know, when we look at people complaining, like, you know, about immigrants and so on and so forth, it's, uh, I'm thinking to myself, well, let's, you know, how much do you want to pay for that tomato? And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that this is justified. I'm saying that we need to start, if we want to have a certain, let's say, standard of living and, and we want to make sure more Americans have jobs, I think it's only, that we have to understand where the money is coming from. It has to come from somewhere. So, uh, do you ever watch I Love Lucy? Uh, yeah. yeah I mean, do you, do you remember the, the chicken and egg episode where, where Lucy wants to raise chickens and she ends up with a bunch of eggs in her shirt and they smash all over her shirt? But anyway, in that episode, she says something about charging, I think it was 50 or I think it was 60 cents a dozen for eggs. And this is, you know, we're talking 1955 or something like that, 1950, somewhere around there. Uh, people complain today if they have, to, if they spend more than $3 a dozen. And you look at the, the difference in the cost of a house, the cost of a car, <laughs> the cost of so many things that, you know, clothes. We need to make sure that our farmers are getting f- paid fair wages. Well, we, we, uh, you know, I've mentioned several times, I'm going to say it one more time. Uh, you know, we, Industrialized, commoditized, and centralized, mm-hmm. and that was done. That was done. It, it wasn't a, a horrible conspiracy theory uh, uh, movement. It was done. 
to make food cheap and abundant and, quote, safe, end quote. And it was wildly successful. It made food wastefully cheap and uh, uh, wastefully abundant, obscenely cheap, and safe, uh, maybe not in all senses of the word. <laughs> I, th- I think of safe as just sterile, not necessarily s- safe, but almost de- devoid of any energy <laughs> at all, as far as I'm concerned. It's, uh, uh, you know, the, it, it was very successful, but it had those unintended consequences we keep talking about. Right. Uh, so I'm going to let you go, but I do have one question, and I'm not totally sure that this is up your alley. Um, it's uh, from a woman named Laura Childs. She and her daughter have uh, written uh, several books on uh, high-fat, low-carbohydrate uh, dieting, and, and through her journey, she's become much more interested in sustainable foods uh, and uh, quality foods and knowing the difference between something that's processed in a box that promises something and, uh, you know, promises an end result and, uh, the, the real foods that you're raising. But she's, uh, been, t- she has a question about sprouts and something called tenders, which I've never heard that term. She says they're six inch plants grown in a medium and she'd like to start growing her own through the winter. She lives in Canada. Uh, what, features should she shop for in a growing medium for optimum nutrition? And I know that we talked before we got on on air about you don't really like to go into the whole nutrition side of things per se, but is there a a, a good strategy for growing a good medium that she can uh, feel comfortable with growing really anything, I would think, not just these tenders? Well, I'm... Uh... Neither you you're right. That's completely outside what what I think of as my fields of expertise. The only uh, the only thing I can say is that you know in the industri- in the extreme in the extreme uh, the most industrial form of agriculture that I can think of is hydroponic farming, where uh, plants are grown in uh, well, basically, a solution of chemical water and a solution of chemicals that reductionist science uh, has determined that plant needs. And in that in that scenario, when you eat a carrot or rutabaga or stalk of celery, all you're getting is the uh, biologically transformed chemicals that science put put in the solution. Right. Uh, if that plant grew in a uh, natural, organic medium that was teeming with microbial life, just intuitively, I got to believe that carrot or rutabaga or stalk of celery would be better for you. Right. Now, you know, I'm telling you what I think and not what I know, but... That sure makes a lot of sense to me. Right. How, how does she emulate that in her soil? How, how, how can someone who's kind of just, just a backyard farmer, gardener, uh, emulate a good growing medium 
uh, that's, you know, is it, is it going to the store and buying some peat moss and sand and, you know, working all these things into the soil she already has? Uh, I mean, I have my own opinions because I do the Korean method of, of cultivating the indigenous microorganisms. Um, in your opinion, is there something she can do? Is it uh, chicken manure or I don't know. Is there something that she can, uh, do to, to really, uh, harness that type of activity in the soil that you, that you do on your farm? You know, what, what I think I would probably do is I would go to the most un- undisturbed soil that I could find. Mm. That might be in the backside of your backyard. Might, it might be in a graveyard that was Ooh. near. It might be in, you know, just someplace that's been left alone. And, and it's, as a, nothing is pristine. You got to know that up front. Right. Nothing is. But go to a place that would have the most undisturbed soil that I could get my hands on. And then I would start a very aggressive uh, composting operation, composting all the food waste or any other waste that you have. And I'd feed that soil with that uh, composted waste. And uh, I think you'd have a pretty damn good growing medium if you did right, that. Right, right, yeah. I'd rather have that than anything I could buy from a, you know, multinational garden production company. Awesome. Yeah. And that, that reminds me that in uh, the Korean method, one of the things that they suggest to start cultivating these microorganisms is to go to basically four corners of your own garden, take some soil and then go to um, places of different elevations. Grab some soil there. Go go up the cl- closest uh, hill or, or mountain and and grab some soil from there and bring some of those microorganisms back to your place. And we actually did an episode on bokashi. I'm not sure if you know what that is, uh, but it's it's an aggressive po- composting system that takes um, less than five weeks to compost uh, your food waste, including bones and blood and all that stuff too. Yeah, uh, we have. We have uh... I think we're the only farm in the country that has a USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and a USDA-approved poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse on the farm. And Um, we have a huge waste stream coming off of those two uh, slaughterhouses. mm -hmm. And we compost all that waste. The waste would be feathers, eviscerate, yeah. Bones from the cutting room, heads, gut fill, dot, dot, dot. We, uh, we grind it up, got a big old grinder or grinder, and we take it to uh, a remote part of the farm, and we use what's called the Cornell University Dead Animal Composting System, which hmm. is we make a lasagna. Out of that's, uh, that's a great description. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think of it that f- that way before, but yeah, <laughs> if it's if it's similar to bokashi, then that's yeah, it's kind of a parfait of some sort. Yeah, that's right. Uh, carbaceous material, and that dead animal material, carbaceous dead animal material, carbaceous, and we let it sit for a year. Then we stir it with our front end loader and let it sit for another year. Then we spread it out on our pastures that are recovering, which is like when the animals are not not growing, not not on it. We've right. already grazed it off. And I think we make the best compost in the world and the pastures respond to it. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I I have in, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I think that our listeners um, are also enjoying this because many of them, like I said at the at the beginning, they're uh, confused about a lot of these labels. Uh, they want to know what they're getting, and they want to understand how their choice, particularly those of us who who do eat meat and will continue to eat meat, how we can do that more sustainably, how we can do that more responsibly, uh, not only to our families, but also to the animals, the land, and our local economies. Thank you so very much, Will. And uh, again, Will Harris was our guest heretic today, and he is uh, the owner of White Oak Pastures at whiteoakpastures.com. You can go there and uh, learn all about his farm. Apparently, you can visit, visit his restaurant and stay the night. You can, and I invite all of you to do so. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day. Thank you very much, Adrian. Appreciate being on. Alrighty. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at NutritionHeretic.com where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at NutritionHeretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash NutritionHeretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks. Thanks.